Hello, and welcome to Journey Church. Let's take out our Bibles and listen in. I have not studied computer coding very much, but ironically, Naomi has in her school. And as she has been learning computer coding, the interesting thing about machines or computers is there's no guesswork. They always do exactly as they are instructed. And so while we can kind of out of our ignorance speak at times of like, I don't know, that thing just kind of has a life of its own. The reality is there is a reason every single time it doesn't work. If my computer inadvertently freezes up, the reality is there's something wrong with its computer code. A word is written wrong, an order of operations is out of whack. If a car is malfunctioning, it's not just like, I don't know, it just kind of does that. There's a reason. And so we, we know that. But what's interesting is when it comes to humans, right? People, me, you, there's a lot of unknown, right? There's, there's a whole subconscious part of our brain, but a lot of times we're just so complex, we often don't know why things happen, right? Have you ever wondered, why does someone do that? What, what were you thinking? Well, consider a decision, right? My family, we might go to dinner at Islands tonight as I'm recording this, and just the idea of why would we choose Islands? You'd think, oh, Rob must like Islands and he had to pick. Well, no, the reality is, well, we don't want to cook and clean, so that's probably one of the things. Well, there's the idea of, well, the Islands is a place the kids would actually enjoy ourselves instead of just going where we want, we want to go somewhere that they want to have. There's an outdoor setup that's kind of like not as ideal as I would have wanted. Um, I don't even mention the actual food. And so there's so many decisions and so many things that we weigh that when someone asks a simple decision like you're gonna go somewhere for dinner, um, it's complex, it's complicated. And so as we start to wonder what, how do people make decisions? Why do they do what they do? We get this beautiful insight into Paul. Because today, just so you know, we're covering six chapters of Acts. Um, we, we left off in chapter 20, and we're covering chapters 21 through 26. The book starts to hit fast forward because we just start to see description after description of things Paul is doing, things that are happening to Paul, his interactions as he gets arrested and kind of um, passed along this political chain. But the reality is we get to see why. And what I want us to look at today and to pull out of this as we as we fly over this is Paul's why, his motivation, right? That Believe it or not, he's not that complex. He's shockingly simple. And I think it's something that we need to learn from. But to learn, we're not going to look at Acts. We're actually going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. He wrote this while in Ephesus, so where we kind of left him last. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Some of you may have heard this passage before. Believe it or not, one of these used to be a life verse for me. Where Paul says this. For though I was free from all, I've made myself servant to all, that I might win. Keyword, win, not conquer, win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so I might win the weak. You get the idea. He's being very repetitive here. Just choosing different people groups, different, he's saying, I'll become that with them so I can win you. Then here's the verse. I have become all things to all people 
that by all means, by all means, I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel. So here Paul is saying, I have my rights. He says, I know that I am free. He knows exactly who he is in Christ. He knows his ability. He is at this point in his life, he has fought against any form of kind of extra things added on to the gospel. It's like, I know I'm completely free, but then I choose to submit and be the role of a servant and come under in almost all these different contexts, people who are stuck in the rigidity of following the law, even though they're free, I'll do that. People who know they're free, I'll do that. Over here, I'll be that. You're weak, guess what? I'm gonna be weak right there with you. I'm gonna serve you all. And he tells you his purpose. I want to win you. I'm not trying to conquer you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to beat you. I want to win you. You're, you're the object I'm a right. I'm not trying to conquer you, right? And so he says that this phrase, by all means, he wants to save some. See, this is not complex thinking. We don't have to try to decode, I wonder why Paul chose islands for dinner. No, no, no. It's, if he did that, it's because we're going to see, obviously, well, because he thought at islands he could save people. <laughs> That's, he's, this, he's a one-note person. This is a terrible music. He's just, you know, it's like electronic. He just hit the same note, 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 note. And so what Paul continues in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, he starts to equate it to sports. He says, don't you know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize, right? Everyone runs the race, but only one's going to win. There's no, there's no participation trophy here. So run so you may obtain it, right? You're going to get sweaty anyways. You might as well get the trophy. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so here, Paul, he says, think of sports. And for us, this is probably one of the best analogies you can come up with. And Paul nails it. He says, when we think of sports, when we look at the NBA, right? Right now, they are playing in the bubble. And so what happens is they are living in a hotel. They're away from their family. They're doing this. And so they control what they eat. And so proper nutrition, so my body can become the best. They're going to have sleep science. And so they're going to go to bed and take rests and do all sorts of things so their body can be peak performance. They're going to work out a certain way. They're going to have personal trainers in a certain way. They're going to do these mental, um, oh my gosh, uh, some of the mindfulness exercises. That's what I'm looking for so their mind could be peak performance. Why? Because they're trying to win. And everything in their life is devoted exclusively to winning. He's like, we, we get it with athletes. Paul's saying, you guys, the spiritual world, how much more so? That's what Paul's committed to. And so how is this possible in our spiritual life? Right? Sports, it seems obvious and something that's a physical endeavor. In business, you could think of it of how do we leverage and how do I work hard and what are the things I can do. But when it comes to our spiritual life, I think we're actually very anemic and we're very kind of lost of like, what does this mean? And I think we have a lot to learn from Paul as we're going to look at this fly over his story. And the thing I want us to see, I did this last week, I'm going to do it again this week. I'm going to tell you up front what I want us to see from the passage. And what I want us to see is that Paul's going to have these four characteristics that he is going to show that show us 
What is his by all means? What are the four things he has to do so he can live this by all means life? And so it's going to be hope, humility, wisdom, and then if you want another W, it'd be Y, but purpose. Hope, humility, wisdom, and purpose. Or hope, humility, wisdom, Y. It's more memorable, um, but purpose is a better word. So let me kind of break these down a little bit. The word hope, Paul clings to. In fact, that's almost the message he's always speaking. His message of the gospel is actually the message of hope. He doesn't just tell you that you guys are wrong. He says, here, it, it, there's a hope in the resurrection. You see, we often think of hope as well-wishing. We also often think of hope as optimism, where we just hope good things happen. We hope that things will turn out okay. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Hope is actually certainty. Oh, it's certainly optimistic because it's a good thing, but it's the, we know the inevitability is going to happen and the inevitability is inescapable and it's something I desire. And so I'm just anticipating good. I'm not waiting for the shoe to drop. I'm waiting for the good to happen. And so, I mean, think of this of like whenever you turn on the Hallmark channel, when you see like the sappy rom-com where you have the, you know, the woman from the big city who's a small business owner who returns back to her small town and there's that gritty plaid wearing lumberjack dude who they just don't get along. You know they're getting together. You know it's going to work out. You just don't know how. And so you're anticipating how that movie ends. Now, that analogy kind of makes me cringe a little bit, but the reality is how much more is the gospel, right? That we know death is inevitable, right? You can't escape death and taxes, but you can actually avert taxes for a while. You can't escape death. But if the resurrection is a certainty, that means if I can't escape death, look past it. That means I also can't escape my resurrection. Whoa. And so for Paul, he's like, I cannot wait to obtain the prize after my death. It's great, and you can have this prize too. There's true hope that no matter if you're rich, poor, if you are traveled or if you've been stuck or whatever it is, you can rise from the dead. It's the one certain thing in 2020. You can rise from the dead through Jesus. Your sins can be forgiven from Jesus. Good is in your future because of the resurrection. And Paul says, oh man, I cling to this hope. My message, my words, everything is of this hope. Well, the next thing we see is that he clings and he holds on to humility. See, Paul's character, we're going to see, is exemplary. That not only is he upstanding and he, he's concerned about his reputation because his reputation, he knows, represents Christ. And so he's actually worried about the way they would think of Jesus. And if he is sinning, if he is acting against, people would actually attribute that to his God. But he is also going to choose humility. Once again, humility gets misstated. We often think humility means low self-esteem. It's not that. Humility is seeing yourself properly and then choosing to serve. Jesus was humble and he knew he was God. That's not low self-esteem, but he took the role of servant and he chose to serve Roman centurions. He chose to serve down in art, the poor, the oppressed, the, the, uh, you know, the lepers, the cripples. He says, I'm here to serve even the, the Jewish political elite. I'm going to humble myself under you and serve you. And so this is not, humility is not people pleasing. It's not letting anyone boss you around and having no backbone. 
Humility is saying, oh, I get it. I'm aware of things. I'm gonna, I know who I am, but I wanna make a choice. And the choice I'm making is for your benefit, even if you realize it or not. He's humble. So we have help, we have humility. The next one is gonna be wisdom. That here in wisdom we see, it's, it's this idea of applying the right knowledge to the right situation. So a lot of people know facts. A lot of people know how to do things, but you, he, wisdom, huh, I'm gonna run through my words here, is this skill of applying the right knowledge in the right situation. And so Paul is gonna use wisdom and his kind of, his emotional intelligence, his EQ, he's gonna realize and recognize, how do I have these people listen to the words I have to say? If I'm trying to serve them, I'm making choices for them, I need to live wisely so they would even accept me in their house. So they would even open their ears to consider the message I have. And so he knows with wisdom, I can't serve people who don't wanna have me around. I can't be a good neighbor to someone who slams their door in my face and I need to live with wisdom so that, that door could be opened. And so with wisdom, he recognizes and he knows what is the true battle of my life. It's not my benefit, it's not my retirement, it's not even my own reputation. He writes to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knows, look, 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 the battle we have, I'm not battling people, I'm battling the forces of evil. I am trying to win the people from those forces. So in his wisdom, what we're gonna see is a complete shift in our approach to other people. That I am not trying to fight them, I am trying to persuade them. I'm trying to influence them, to bring them open and more and more close to the heart of God. And so an enemy can't influence someone. You're just gonna oppose that enemy. But a friend, a trusted source, a confidant, we give them access to our very hearts and we can influence. I think of uh, an example came up this week where uh, Jason, Jason Luce, he sent out an email of some different links of like, hey, you guys, I read a lot of stuff. I think this is really good. Would you consider it? Well, guess what? I don't read almost anything on Facebook that's posted for the most part, but when a trusted friend, Jason, emails me something, I know it's worth clicking. And so I actually will read that article. I actually will click that video because I know it's not given in haste and I know it comes from a source that's worth listening to. Now, granted, Jason is an example for that for so many of us. I'm, I'm giving you kind of a, a, an easy example here, but the reality is we want to be those people. And so we have to use wisdom so that people would want us. People who even might be considered your enemy would still invite your voice, your opinion, because hopefully your voice and your opinion would be the very voice of God. And the last thing here is his purpose or his why, if you wanna have the cool alliteration. That for Paul, he knows that this world, this is not the point. It's what comes after that's the point. And so his entire life is he is saying, I want to change forever by this current moment. 
So if I can change someone's eternity based on where I eat dinner, I'll make that choice. If I can change someone's forever based on if I'm incarcerated or the words I live or the way I neighbor or the way I speak, I will choose it every single time because my sole purpose, right? This is computer programming. My one thing I'm gonna accomplish no matter what is I want you, your eternity, your forever to be different. Paul is consumed with the gospel. Right? This is an amazing story that this world is so broken. It is a broken world with broken systems and broken people. And we look in the mirror, we see, so are we. But the good news is that God sees this. And God is a father who cares. And the creator is not passive. He enters into creation and he wants to restore you. He wants, he actually already loves you. He doesn't want to love you. He loves loving you, in fact. And that Jesus is God come into history. He is the word become flesh, the God among us, Emmanuel. And when he lives his life, he does all the things we couldn't do. He was the one person not broken. And so he lives the life that we wish we could accomplish, fully pleasing to the Father. And then he dies chooses death, the one person who doesn't deserve it. And in his death, he says, you know what? This death can be for you. I'll, I'll substitute it. But get this, when I rise, when he rises from the dead, he says, I'll take your death. I'm going to give you my resurrection. And so through Jesus, we have a new start. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness. Through Jesus, we have a fresh, you know, we have, we have hope. We have a true future because of Jesus. And Paul says, that is the only thing that matters. Why else would I care about anything? Why would I care about my retirement? Why would I care about my backyard landscaping? I care about your future and my future and everything else is going to be done with how can I change this future? And so with that being said, I'm going to fly through five chapters. I know I did a lot of the teaching up front, but I'm just going to tell the story. We're not going to read the verses. Um, this is a good read if you want to read. And I'm going to kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of it um, or the Spark Notes, depending on what generation you're from. And uh, we're going to see the hope, the humility, the wisdom, the purpose through this story. So here's how it goes. Paul finally leaves the Ephesian elders and he arrives via boat in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he begins this Nazarite vow. It's a very kind of sacred and solemn vow, a very, you know, stringent Jewish vow. Um, if you want to go back in the day, in the book of Judges, Solomon, uh, not Solomon, I'm sorry, Samson, he took a Nazarite vow. He broke every moment of it, but we see that it's this historical Nazarite vow and it's very, it, it's, it's as stringent and as orthodox Jewish as you can get. And then he is arrested on the seventh day of the ceremony he is taking. And they have false charges is that they think Paul snuck a person who was not Jewish into the Jewish only section of the temple. Now the, the temple had all these concentric rings where you, everyone can come to this part, but then only men could come to this part. And then only Jewish men could come in this part. And then only the Jewish men who are priests could go in this part. And then like, it was kind of these concentric circles. And they believed that Paul brought a non-Jewish person into the Jewish section, which by the way is amazing because that's the very thing God does. He brought everyone into his own home. He, he, he destroys these barriers and they accuse Paul of this. He didn't do it, even though he fights for the Gentiles. And so it's a false accusation 
And right then and there, they start to beat him. And then Roman soldiers see this kind of riot happening, this crowd, this like this complete ruckus. And so they just naturally trying to keep the peace. They come in there and uh, they don't stop the people doing the beating. They just say, well, he's the problem. He's the source of the fighting. We just want the fight to end. They grab Paul, they pull him away. And then Paul quickly tells them something that's very important. He tells them, hey, 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 hey. It's not that I'm innocent. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. They go, oh, hold on. And he says, I, I have a right and I want to speak to my accusers right now. And what he does is he doesn't tell them I'm innocent. Here's what I was actually doing. Here's the guy who you saw me with. Here's who he really is. What he chooses to do is not fight for his own freedom. Right then and there, he says, let me tell you my story. You guys know me. I grew up around the corner here. You guys know the street I lived on. You guys knew the school I went to. Hey, we played in the playground. He tells them his entire story and says, and then I encountered Jesus. And as Jewish and as amazing observant and as respectable and as honorable as I was, I had this encounter with Jesus and that changed my life. And he begins to tell them the hope of the resurrection right then and there. And so you see this humility on display, right? Where he's serving the Jewish people. He's coming under them. He's saying, I, I, I'm one of you. But in his wisdom, he's using his Roman citizenship and he's also learning how to tell the gospel in their words. And he's got this purpose of, I want to tell you about hope. And so before we continue, I want to kind of explain some of the political situation Paul finds himself in. Because this Roman occupation is a big deal. Now, the Roman Empire was the largest empire known at this time. And what they would do is they were different from other empires. Other empires would come in. They'd wipe you out completely. They would take away all of your um, religious practices. They would take away. They'd enslave you. They'd kind of murder off the men. They'd marry the women. They'd try to breed out your culture, if you will, through um, rape and torture and all sorts of heinous acts. Well, Rome was a little different in that they did not want to wipe out their cult your culture. What they did is we want the political power, we'll take your taxes, we'll take your finances, and we will rule over you with our military, but you get to kind of deal with all the ins and outs. We actually don't want to get into the uh, details of your life. So you can still rule yourself as long as you bow <laughs> to the emperor, as long as you pay your taxes, as long as you have no military threat, we're fine. We're good to go. And so Rome was strange in that they wanted to maintain peace and they let the Jews maintain their faith in Yahweh. And so, but they didn't really care about these, they didn't want to get involved in the religious matters. And so what there also is happening here, I'm sorry, is that because of Rome is in charge, to be a Roman citizen, it is like the class where you are just an upper class. By being a Roman citizen, that fundamentally means you have rights that other people just don't even get. If you say certain things, there's certain things that can never happen to a Roman citizen that we can just do if we want to, to everyone else. And so Paul, having this Roman citizenship, he is going to use it to his advantage, which ends up being for the gospel. But what happens next in Paul's story is he is brought before the Jewish council by the Roman guards. And while he is there with this council, he speaks with wisdom and he's crafty about the divide. Because it's not just a single 
there, there's actual political factions within the council. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we often just think of them together as the enemies of Jesus, but the Pharisees were kind of like the more celebrity pastors, which is a funny thing, um, but we have them in our culture too, um, that they were well-known and everyone respected them. Then the Sadducees were kind of these political players. They had the cash. They were in the cities where the Pharisees were kind of the more rural folks. And the Pharisees, there were some theological differences. Pharisees believed that there was going to be a resurrection someday. And the Sadducees thought, no, that's not going to happen. So Paul quickly, craftily says, hey, 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 here's why I'm actually on trial here. It's not about this whole Jewish temple thing. It's because I told you about the resurrection. And they're like, wait a second. The house divided will not stand. And this Jewish council, they erupt and they fight and they fight. And eventually the Pharisees say, eh, you know what? Yeah, he's good by our books because at this point they just want to win the political fight. Um, but then he gets recaptured after this is all dusted up. Um, and then something critical happens. And I think this is a turning point in this story is that in chapter 23, verse 11, hear what happens to Paul. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified for the facts about me in Jerusalem, right? You've been my witness in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. God gives him something clear. His purpose changes a little bit. See, Paul knew he was trying to make a difference in eternity. He is there to preach and proclaim the gospel everywhere. He, he doesn't care where. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But now the Lord tells him, I want you in Rome. And so Paul now is going to proclaim the gospel with the attempt and the intent to get into Rome, to get to the big city of the entire empire. And so there is a plot to kill Paul at this point that he, they, uh, that some of the Jewish folks, they take a vow of fasting that we aren't going to eat until we can kill Paul. Paul finds out through this really cool, like, you know, espionage where he finds someone, they tell this person and like they pass the secret along. And so they decide that they're going to ship him off up north to this town called Caesarea. Um, and this giant military escort takes him up there. So here's Paul getting a state sponsored travel with guards to get him closer to Rome. And he shows up there and he is then on trial. And the guy presiding over the trial is this man by the name of Felix. Um, and in our kind of American concept, think of it more like a, uh, a county representative, right? Or a, uh, a someone over Ventura County or a, um, a district or a, one of the representatives in the house or something like that, where they have area, they have kind of responsibility of a small region and Felix is that. And so he holds trial and the Jewish leaders, they come up to Felix's court and they say, okay, here's the big trial. This guy, everywhere he goes, every town he goes, riots break out. Every town he goes, there's things going on. He's a rabble rouser. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. This guy is trouble. That's all you need to know. Get him out of here. Kill him. And Paul's defense is simply, I didn't do any of that. That was everyone's response to me. Uh, I'm innocent, right? I'm an honorable person. You guys know my life. You've seen where I grew up. You've seen my actions. I'm a worship-loving Jew. I've not violated any of the Jewish law. There is no evidence of anything they are saying. And he says, once again, I'm here because of the gospel. And he tells them about the resurrection right there in his legal trial. He's not trying to get himself off. He's trying to preach the resurrection every single time. Well, then Felix is like, I don't know. 
He's indecisive and he holds on to Paul for about two years. And in those two years, Paul is teaching. We actually find out that Felix and his wife regularly would call Paul and say, hey, can you tell us more about this? They're curious. And Paul, get this, he is not angry at them for not releasing him, even though they're holding him without charges for no apparent reason. He's now trying to win them to the Roman political system that has no basis for arresting me. I will try to win you so that by all means I might save some. And so eventually Felix, I don't know if he dies or he moves out, but there's a new guy whose name is Festus and he takes over Felix's spot um, and he wants to hear. And so he, he calls him up and then Paul basically says, you know what? I want to go talk to Caesar, which means I'm going to Rome. That's his goal now. Lord spoke to him. So King Agrippa, he is similar to like a governor, right? He's no longer a county. He's like a state representative. He's over these different governors. And uh, he, Paul's in front of him. He's kind of has this back and forth with Paul. We ask Paul, are you crazy? Paul's like, no, I'm not crazy. He's like, are you sure you didn't do this? Paul's like, no, I believe in the resurrection. He starts to talk the gospel yet again. King Agrippa goes, wait a second. Are you trying to convert me? And Paul's like, uh, yeah, dude, that's kind of what I do. To the King Agrippa's, I will speak King Agrippa so I might win King Agrippa. And so last thing you see here is Paul leaves King Agrippa. He hops on a boat and he sets sail for Rome under Roman protection. Even though we're going to find out next week, it's not that, <laughs> not that good. Uh, they crash and they have all sorts of hardships. But uh, he is on his way to do the very thing God told him to do. So if you look back at Paul's, the story of all this political, him being used for political gain, for political, all this going on, Paul always holds on to his why. I am here so that people can hear about Jesus and that they can become followers of God and they can be set free and their eternity can be forever changed. He is speaking and influencing always for the gospel with wisdom. He's going to use his Roman citizenship. He's going to pull his political power so he can speak the gospel. With his wisdom, he's going to obey all the Jewish laws so that they can listen to him. He's going to speak to the Romans. He's going to speak everywhere so he can save some of them. And in humility, he never disrespects anyone. The, the, the Roman people who are taking advantage of him and who are too cowardly to do what was right, he's like, I'm here to serve you as well. To the Jewish council, he's here to serve the Jewish council. Uh, and he holds on to this hope that he knows that it doesn't matter if he's beaten to death because when he dies, he rises and the resurrection is his. It doesn't matter if he gets out of prison because he knows the resurrection is the thing I long for. And so he's always speaking of hope and he's holding on to hope. So pulling all this together, I want us just to think about in our own life, how can we live like Paul? How do we live this by all means life where we could say, you know what, Rob Patterson, I have lived by all means I'm living so my neighbors can see Jesus. That you can say, by all means, we are living to make a difference in forever, people's eternity. And so I think there's good questions of, are we living with these four areas, right? Am I really living with hope or am I getting caught up in the things that are going to fade? Am I really living with humility? Am I choosing to serve or am I trying to be served by different things? Am I living with wisdom right now, right? Who's actually even listening to me? My, do I live with purpose? Now, we, the, the problem with this, of this by all means life, is I think some of us, we do a great job in some areas, and then we kind of choose other areas that we're just like, eh, that one's kind of mine. That one's for this reason. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of have dual purposes and we, we can sometimes defeat ourselves. And so I don't get to pick and choose what people look at. As your pastor, on a Sunday morning or whatever confirms as a Sunday morning, you can look at me and I can be upstanding and I can live this great life and I can say, by all means on Sunday mornings, I'm living so that you can hear Jesus. But if you find out that I am a terrible parent, that I am abusive father or, or these terrible things, the reality is I have completely undercut. And no matter how good I do in certain areas, my inability in others completely nullifies my message. And people don't hear the gospel. They just see Rob. The, the, the goal is I want them to see Rob, but I want them to see the Christ through me. I want them to see Christ through you. And so we don't get to pick and choose what they look at. We can have a calendar full of spiritual activity. We could even donate money. We can do different things. But if our words are constantly slandering all these things, even the things that we're you know, rightfully against, oh, that person, they just slander people. Something I think we do that Paul doesn't do is that we tend to narrow our influence by adding in other things. And these might be things that we are convinced of, but they aren't gospel issues. And so, I mean, one of my biggest concerns in the politicization of everything in the world is that by rallying behind a political party or something, we are massively cutting in half the people who are willing to listen to us. Because people are going to take you as a one-trick pony. They're going to take you as one thing. And if your one thing is anything other than Jesus, or even if it's a Jesus and, like we spoke last week, they're going to only hear the and. And what you're going to say is, I want everyone to hear about Jesus. And then when I mention this other thing, only people who agree with that other thing are going to even hear my words of Jesus. We narrow that scope in a way that's unhelpful. I think, and so... I think in all of this, this, our desire to live this by all means life, that I would do everything by every means, by my finances, by the way I neighbor, by the way I parent, by the way I, the things I look at, by the things I choose to engage into, the way I speak, all means necessary. I'm going to have to change some things. I'm going to have to look in the mirror and realize, am I really living for God, right? Am I really running the race to receive that prize? Or am I just running the race so that I can get the trophy? I'm like, well, I get any kind of participation medal. That kind of counts. He's saying, no. What greater purpose, what greater point can we live for in our life than to see someone's eternity changed? So I think while the mirror is helpful, I don't want to leave you looking in the mirror. Because if we look in the mirror, we're going to end up depressed, right? If we look at other people around us who are all messed up too, we're going to be very disappointed. Um, but if we look to God, if we looked at Jesus as we're trying to live this by all means life, guess what? Jesus is the one who actually did that. That Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it tells us this. Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? These fellow believers who disagree with us on some things, but they're also living for all means. Let us also lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely to us. And let's run with race, the, run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. 
if you and I want to live this by all means life, we have to recognize that Jesus lived for all means for us. That Jesus was all in. God was all in on you knowing truth. God was all in on you coming back into his own family. And so when we look at Jesus, we see a God who's compassionate towards us, not just a God who wants us to work for him. We see a God who desperately loves being with you so much so that he would send his son to win you back to himself, to influence you. He wouldn't coerce your heart. He would influence your heart back to him. That changes the conversation. When I start to look up and consider just the worship and the awe of who God is, you know what? Something, a gospel that, com- that kind of demands my all, it makes sense. What else would I live for but to say thank you back to God, but to stand in awe and reverence and worship and say, what an amazing God who would love me this much that would send people like Paul so I could be influenced. God, could I be that? I want to be that. God, use the means I have, please, because I want the world to see you, not me. I don't even want to see me, God. I want to see you in me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you um, that you would send people in our life who lived for us, who would submit, who would find ways so that we could hear about you, God, that we could have true hope, not that this world gets better, not that our circumstances improve, Lord, but that we rise When this world is all done, we know we're good. It is inescapable. And so God, I pray that we would cling to this hope right now. Lord, that we would not grab hold of anything else but you, God, that our words and that by all means, we can live with this hope. We can live with this purpose. God, that you are better than anything. You are better than paychecks, Lord. You are better than homes. You are better, Lord, than election results. You are better than everything. And so, God, you are the thing that is worth us living for. So, God, we want to spend some time in response. God, not just looking in the mirror, but God, show us something. God, because we want to live in more joy, in more peace, in more love, and set aside everything else that would take away from that. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you want more information about this teaching or another teaching, visit us online at journeyto.org. Come see us at our Sunday service, 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club of America, Marion and John E. Anderson Youth Center, located at 1980 East Avenida de las Flores in Thousand Oaks, California. 